Good morning, everyone. It's good to be in the Lord's house today. This morning, we're going to be looking at a passage from Ephesians chapter 4. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 7. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, in a sermon that I've titled, Living Like a Child of God. Living Like a Child of God. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. In a moment, we'll look at these verses. When my brother graduated from high school, he was accepted into a military academy in Vermont. And I remember as a family visiting this school before he actually started there and thinking that my brother was crazy, absolutely out of his mind for wanting to go to this military school. And nothing against military, but all cadets had certain requirements and regulations that they had to meet, not to mention a whole list of rules that were a mile long that they needed to abide by in this military academy. They had to be up and out of bed at 5 a.m. every morning. Now, that may not be all that bad, but their beds had to be made so perfectly that you had to be able to bounce a dime off of it. Their hair had to be cut immediately and to be maintained at a certain length. And the icing on the cake for me was their eating requirements in their mess hall. Now, if I remember correctly, they were required to eat using 90-degree motions. They had to do this and eat every meal with 90-degree motions. And I remember thinking, I looked at my brother and I said, Joel, you're out of your mind. You're out of your mind. I don't know why you would ever want to go to a place like this that is structured. Every little detail around you in your life, they're controlling and regulating every little specific thing all the time. And I remember when a couple months into his first semester there, we came and we went to visit. And I remember he was in a group of other cadets, and I remember thinking, I have no idea which one's him. They were all dressed the same. Their haircut all looked the same. Every one of them was moving in the same motions. I knew he was one of the 20 or 30 group that was in that specific group. I couldn't pick him out if you, if you asked me to. If you gave me a million dollars to pick my brother, who I'd grown up with my entire life, I couldn't pinpoint him at all. It was, pick any one of them, they all looked the same. And I remember thinking just how crazy it was and how this was not for me at all. So I went to Bible college. And I quickly found out that this is so much like a military academy. I had to keep my hair trimmed at a certain length. There were certain dress requirements I had to adhere to. I had to wear a tie every single day. I had to make my bed. I had to clean my bathroom every day because it was inspected every single morning. If I went off campus, there were certain places that I couldn't visit. While on campus, there were certain elevators and certain stairways that I couldn't go up and down on. I couldn't have a cell phone outside of my dorm room. I had to be in bed, and the lights had to be off in my room at a certain time at night. And here's the crazy part. I knew about most of these rules before I attended, and I still went. When a person signs up to attend a school or decides to join an organization, he obligates himself to live according to the standards and to the requirements that the school or the organization or the institution sets forth. Whatever aim or goal of the institution, 
He accepts it as his own when he signs on for it, and he seeks to do everything to abide by what they're asking him to do. When a person from another country becomes a U.S. citizen, they publicly declare to abide by the laws that have been set forth in this country. When a person is hired by a business or a corporation, they publicly declare to agree to the code of conduct, to the rules that have been established, and make it a practice to abide by them as long as they want to have a job where they are. I played a lot of sports growing up. And with each team that I was on, I knew I had to do what my coach instructed. He's the boss. If I'm going to stay on this team, if I'm going to continue playing along with these fellow players, I need to do what he says. He's going to set the rules. He's going to set the standard of what, ex- what expectations each of the players are going to have. So I had the clear instructions. It was my goal to make sure that I was going to live according to that standard that had been set. In every area of life, we have rules. In every area of life, we have requirements. Where there's expectations. There are standards that, we, that have been established which we are to live by. We wouldn't be in a civilized society without them. In fact, no society would last without at least some rules. Even if there are no written rules, there are unwritten rules by which people will often govern themselves by if they don't have something down on pen and paper. And in all honesty, human beings long to live up to certain standards. We enjoy being included. We enjoy belonging to something. And many of us will go through great lengths to see that we qualify for acceptance into certain groups and into certain organizations. Even after we've been accepted, we'll go through great lengths to ensure that we're never rejected or never kicked out of this organization. In John chapter 9... The Bible tells us about an instance where Jesus healed a man that was born blind. The man had never been able to see before. From his birth, he was blind, and Jesus healed him miraculously. And when the parents were called in for questioning to determine whether or not this was all a big hoax, or if this this man indeed was blind from birth, they were called into question. They hesitated in front of those who were interviewing them to give the whole truth. And due to their their hatred of Jesus and the refusal to believe what Jesus had claimed and all that he had done, the Jews, the religious leaders, were convinced that this man that Jesus had healed in John chapter 9 was never blind to begin with. They were convinced that this was a scheme that Jesus was working together with this so-called blind man to try and garner more attention for Christ, for trying, to try and build more popularity and more fame for Christ. And so the religious leaders are trying to get to the bottom of this to find out what hoax is going on and what tricks have been played here. So the parents are called in for questioning to set the matter straight because who would know better than the parents as to whether or not this child, or he's not a child, he's a man at this time, but whether or not he was actually born blind. And so they call him in and they're questioned. And listen to what we read in John chapter 9, verses 20 to 22. It says, His parents answered them and said, They're questioned by the religious leaders. They say, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we know not. He is of age, ask him, he shall speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. 
see what's happening here is the parents know that this is their son. The parents know that he was blind from birth. They know that a miracle has taken place because their son can now see. But their fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue prevented them from giving the credit to Christ. Because the Jews and the religious leaders had already determined that if anyone at all gives credit to Christ, they're done. They're no longer allowed to be worshiping in the synagogue. And so their fear of being rejected from something they have been accepted in weighed more on them than to give credit where credit was due. We see this also a few chapters later in John chapter 12 and verses 42 to 43. The Bible says, Nevertheless, among the chief rulers also many believed on him. And the context is speaking of Christ. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. You seeing what's happening? People were more afraid of being rejected and being ousted and excommunicated from an organization that they had already been accepted in. More so than giving credit to where credit was due, specifically in this case, Christ. What's sad today is that when it comes to church, we lack the desire to live up to certain standards because there is no fear of being ostracized. Think about this with me for a moment. On the front page of our church constitution, and if any of you don't have one, I can get you one, but on the front page of our church constitution here at Latham Bible Baptist Church, we read these words. Latham Bible Baptist Church is a group of Bible-believing Christians who have gathered together to worship the Lord, walk in love one toward another, witness of all God has done in our life. Under Article 2, Purpose of the Church, we read this. This church, believing in the Bible as the inspired word of God and as the sole authority for faith and practice, declares its purpose to preach and teach the entire will of God as revealed in God's holy word, to maintain regular services for public worship, to proclaim earnestly the gospel message, and to urge its personal acceptance both privately and publicly, to promote systematic Bible study and teaching for Christian service and soul winning, to pray for one another that we may live according to the will of God as revealed in his word. To promote Christian friendship and fellowship. To observe the two ordinances, believers' baptism and the Lord's table as established by Jesus Christ. To fulfill the great commission given by the Lord Jesus Christ to his church, which is threefold. To win souls to Jesus Christ. To baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And to teach them to observe all things as revealed in the word of God. Now, there is much more spelled out there. But I, I think you get the point. In the days of Christ, there was so much fear of being excommunicated from the synagogue, which was their church in those days, for not following the rules that they had established for themselves as this organization. And that the people who had been accepted into the synagogue followed those rules so sternly without wavering, even though in many cases, as I just laid out for you, it meant denying Christ. Denying Christ is obviously wrong. But think about what we're doing. We're signing on board with the mission of this church, Latham Bible Baptist Church, when we join in membership. And the clear mission, as it's established there in the Constitution, 
is to live for Christ both privately as well as publicly. To be increasing in the knowledge of him, to be praying for one another, to be loving one another, to be seeking the lost for Christ and winning souls for him. This is what we signed up for. When we joined in membership, this is what we agreed to. And yet, our loyalty to this mission is quickly called into question when we examine our lives for maybe more than five minutes. The Jews were terrified at losing out on fellowship that they did everything they could to make sure they were following those rules. They did everything to make sure that they furthered the mission of the synagogue which the Pharisees and the religious leaders had established. They wanted to be accepted. They wanted to remain, remain belonging to something. And once they were accepted, they fought tooth and nail to make sure that they remained that way. Now, I'm not saying that we're going to start kicking people out of church if you're not praying enough. But imagine if we did. Just think about what we all agreed to when we became members here. Now, certainly there are plenty of reasons where we'll have to address a matter that involves removal of membership, but I'm just calling attention to a couple stated purposes in the church. Are we proclaiming the gospel both privately and publicly? Are we active in Christian service and soul winning? Are we praying for each other to live according to the will of God? Are we promoting Christian friendship and fellowship? This is literally what's spelled out in our church constitution. The mindset of the Jews in Jesus' day was to do whatever was required of them to remain in that fellowship. But the mindset of many Christians today is to not be active, but to be more apathetic. We're happy to be part of something, to belong to something, to be accepted as a member. But when it comes to actually living up to the goal and the mission of what we're part of, many are apathetic because there's no fear of being dismissed from that fellowship. Many Christians are perfectly content receiving all the spiritual security, all of the spiritual blessings, all of the promises that the gospel offers, but have little to no sense of responsibility in conforming to God's standards personally and obeying God's commands. The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians, chapters 4, 5, and 6, are all about we as, how we as Christians should be living in light of who we now are in Christ. There is a practical response for every believer to make. The first three chapters basically lay out how we got to this point that we're saved. And now it's with that knowledge, what should the practical side look like? The Lord has called us to live a certain way, to talk a certain way. And this is something that should come as no surprise considering what the Lord has saved you from. He saved you from eternal damnation. He transformed you from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. It goes without saying that our lives should demonstrate at least the slightest bit of change that we're no longer a child of the devil, but now we're a child of God. And, that, and this will, changes will be reflected when we live according to the standard that has been set forth. When you're saved, you acknowledge that you cannot save yourself. You acknowledge that your way of thinking and your way of living wasn't working out. And you needed something beyond you to actually help you and to change the course of your life. You acknowledge that Jesus is the only answer to your misery and that he alone is going to bring you salvation. His way of salvation is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. If you accept that by placing your faith in him, 
you were saved. The Bible makes it very clear. So shouldn't that then be followed with an obedience to what God has then instructed? If you believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, that he is the only way that can bring hope to this life, shouldn't you also expect that he is the only way for you then to live? Christ doesn't save us to then give us freedom to finally live our own way without any consequences. He saves us and shows us that there is a better way for us to live, a way in which we've not been living, one that offers victory, one that brings success, one that brings us eternal joy and peace. He, he saves us and shows us what our lives should look like now that we're in Him. God expects us to conform to His ways, not just in our personal lives, but corporately as a church. It's not the forced legalism that was present with the Jews in the days of Christ, but a willing conformity to God's holiness, to God's love, and to God's will. God's not going to revoke our salvation if we fight His will. But we can be sure to live a life of misery and turmoil as long as we're living a life outside of God's will. When God saves us, He makes us new creatures, and our new nature that we are requires new living. When we're living outside the will of God, we're living a life that is contrary to our new nature in Christ. So we're always going to be feeling like we're a fish out of water, where we're struggling with every step that we take and every decision that we make because the more that we're living for ourselves and outside of the will of God, the more our new nature is telling us you're not living the way that you should. Things are not going right. Things are not as they should be. For the believer to have perfect harmony in his life, he needs to be in the center of God's will because that is what our new nature in Christ is longing for. And every time you step out of the will of God, the Holy Spirit is urging you to come back. And he's pointing out all the issues that are going to come up and he's making you feel convicted and miserable for being in an area that you are not supposed to be in. And so you can live with that misery, but it's never going to go away until you come back into the will of God. And the Holy Spirit is going to keep that misery there because God is never going to allow a believer to be comfortable living outside of his will. Because his new nature in Christ requires him to be in his will in order for there to be harmony and that lasting peace that we so desperately need. With your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4, follow along as I read. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, based on what the previous chapters have dealt with, and they kind of go through and outline how we are saved, what we're saved out of, and what we're saved for, the transition is now made here in Ephesians chapter 4. And it starts there by saying, I therefore. So based on all that that was presented in the first three chapters, which we haven't looked at, but summed up very, very briefly. Based on all that Christ has done, based on what he saved us from, based on the new life that we have in him, based on the fact that he is our peace, that he is our cornerstone, that he is what we're building our lives upon. Based on all that, chapters 4, 5, and 6 are the application of all of that wisdom, of all that knowledge to practical living. 
If you want to live a life that is pleasing to God, you first must know what pleases God. Many churches go through rough patches where they're just limping through life instead of thriving for God. And rather than going back to the basics, they seek renewal in all the wrong places. Church renewal doesn't come through new programs with new buildings or with new educational methods or anything external. Church renewal comes first through the renewing of our minds. Notice what it says later on in chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and verses 23 and 24. It says, And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. It's so frustrating when we miss this truth. Because we bring upon ourselves all sorts of issues, thinking that renewal as a church or as an individual must come from something else. Too many churches are seeking better methods when God is seeking better men. Living like a child of God is seen in several ways. And the answer here, how to be a better man is right here. First of all, we need to walk worthy. We must walk worthy. Look back at verse number one, Ephesians chapter four. Walk worthy. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. He's talking to believers here. He's reminding them of what they've been saved from, how they've been saved, what they've been saved to. And he says, therefore, this is how you need to live. Walk worthy of that. You've been saved by the grace of God. You've been saved unto good works, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and 10 tell us. And he says, walk worthy of that. You're not the child of the devil you once were. Christ has saved you. He's changed you. He's transferred you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Live like you're a child of God. Walk worthy of that. And walking worthy of God doesn't always mean that we're going to see success, that we're going to see prosperity, at least not from the world's perspective. And that is why Paul starts off by calling himself the prisoner of the Lord. Again, he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. He's writing these words from prison, and he's informing believers that living like a child of God can be a costly life. But he's also showing them that from his prison cell, he has counted the cost and he's deemed living like a child of God a worthwhile adventure. Paul is showing every believer that even though the world looked upon his situation in prison as demoralizing, as defeating, as discouraging, him being in prison, he is encouraging them did nothing to deter him from the devotion that he had for Christ, nor his confidence that he had in Christ. The reason nothing affected him during the time that he was in prison was because his objectives were aligned with Christ. He embraced the mission of Christ, and everything he did was done in light of who Christ is and everything that Christ had done for him. So it really made no difference where he was, because his mission never changed. His desire and the object of his goal in life never changed. Now, if I took a poll, and if we were all honest, we would probably admit that we're all a little more self-centered and a little more self-oriented than anything else. We tend to first see things from a perspective of how we stand to benefit and how things will impact us. Now, that's not true of every single one of us. But I think in general, we tend to be this way. The believer who has the word of God, though, richly dwelling in his heart and in his life, will look at things and wonder how God would be affected, how things will reflect on God, what God would have us to do with this issue, in this situation. 
how we can most please and honor God during these circumstances. This is the idea that David was trying to convey in Psalm 16, verse 18, where he says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. See, David is looking at things from God's perspective, and he's not looking at what man might say about his situation. He says, I put the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. The Lord is there with him. The Lord is what he's filtering every decision, every circumstance through. Why is he in this situation? Well, the Lord must have a reason for it. Why is he dealing with these problems? The Lord must be teaching me a lesson through this. Everything is filtered through what the Lord could possibly be doing. And here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul was not offering a suggestion to the believers, but beseeching them. Again, he says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. He's urging them, he's begging them, pleading with them to earnestly do what he's calling them to do, to walk worthy. He's passionately showing them that there was no way they were going to live lives that would demonstrate they belong to God apart from abiding by the standards that he had previously spoken of in the first three chapters. He's pleading with them out of a deep love for them. He wanted them to live an abundant love and an abundant life in Christ, and he's giving them the formula to make that happen. Paul was doing here what many pastors do. He's imploring his listeners to get right with God, and he's showing them how to do it. I've lost count of how many times I've had people ask me for counsel, and I've shown them in Scripture what they need to do, what the Bible says for them to do. Not what I think they should do, but what the Bible says for them to do, and then for them to look at me as if I'm asking them to do something so drastic. I've had, literally had people come and say, Pastor, we need to meet with you. Can you, you know, fit us in on Tuesday? And, okay, yeah, absolutely, come in. And, and I've sat people in my own home across the table from them and says, okay, I hear your situation. Here's what the Bible says. Your situation's literally spelled out in Scripture. It's not my opinion as to what I think you should do, but here's what the Bible says. And they look at me and they think, well, that's asking too much. Then why did you come to me? I'm literally bringing you to what you need to want, what you, what you need, what you're asking for. And the solution is here, and it's not in man's opinion, which is prone to fail, but in God's word, which has never failed. And you don't want it. We do this so often, where we, we show what needs to be done. And this is what Paul is doing. He's calling them to live a specific way, to walk worthy of the vocation with which they're called. And he's beseeching, he's pleading for them to do this because he's found it to be more than worthwhile. But many times, even while it's clearly spelled out, it's rarely heeded. And this responsibility doesn't only fall on pastors, but every believer is called to action when it becomes apparent that a fellow believer is erring in some capacity or struggling in some way. With love and meekness, we're to beseech our brother or sister to respond in obedience to God's word. The vocation wherewith we are called. There in verse number one of chapter four. It refers to our salvation. The Lord is the one who saved us. And as a result of that, he has set us on a new course for this life and life after this. God has transformed us into new, cre new creatures through faith in his son. And that should be evidenced by how we're living. Believers should be living each day demonstrating that we have been changed, that we've been called out of the darkness of sin and have been transformed into the light, God's glorious light of grace and eternal life. 
We went from being a child of the devil to being a child of God. And the Bible says, joint heirs with Christ. We have a heavenly inheritance waiting for us because of our faith in Christ. Therefore, our new life in Christ should show forth the spiritual position that we now have in Christ. You'd think that we could at least get it right while we're in church, right? But quite often it seems like we're attending a funeral service more than an actual church service. Often we look depressed, we look tired, cold, indifferent, which is not at all what the child of God should look like really at any time, let alone when we're in church. I'm going to say something a little crazy here, but it is okay to smile. Amen. It is okay to talk to one another, pretend like you know each other. It's okay to forgive one another. It makes me sick when there is strife and division and envying in church because nine times out of ten, it is over something so petty. Many times we hold grudges, grudges against fellow church members even though the other, other, other person has no idea that we're upset with them. Or if they do, they don't even know what you're upset about. What message are we sending the world when we're just as petty as the world? Are we walking worthy of the vocation wherewith we are called when we're holding grudges, when we're harboring resentment for fellow believers, our own kind here? What are we telling the world? We're supposed to be serving side by side one another, accomplishing the same goal in Christ. How can that be done when we can't even look at certain people in church? Or if we do, we give them this really dirty and mean look. You may have determined that you're perfectly content never talking to a certain person or to a certain group of people, never letting anything affect your walk with the Lord. But you're just going to distance yourself from that person. If they're going, then I'm not going to be there. And if they've made a certain dish at the fellowship luncheon, well, I'm definitely not going to eat theirs. I don't care how good it is. I don't care if it's cheesecake and my favorite dessert is cheesecake. I'm making an exception today because I know who made it. I want nothing to do with that person. You may be thinking that it's not going to affect your personal walk with the Lord, but I promise you it is going to affect your walk with the Lord. No matter what you tell yourself, you are not walking worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And you're not walking worthy as long as you're harboring ill feeling towards others. Talk to each other. Forgive one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Don't take my word for it. Look at Ephesians 4.32. Be kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Walk worthy. Second, walking, what walking worthy looks like. What walking worthy looks like. And there are several things that I'm going to point out here as far as what it looks like. First of all, lowliness. Lowliness. Look at verses 2 and 3 as we identify what walking worthy looks like. With all lowliness and meekness, with longsuffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The first thing that we see is lowliness. This is what it starts by. This is how it looks like. This is the idea of humility, and this is where it has to start. Pride is something that every single one of us struggle with. Some of us struggle with it more than others, and pride is going to stand before you like a brick wall, preventing you from living like the child of God you should be living like. 
And what's sad is that many Christians remain prideful because they view lowliness, they view humility as a negative quality, almost as a weakness, when in reality, humility is probably the most foundational Christian virtue. We cannot even believe in Christ, let alone begin to serve him without humility. And still, humility is incredibly elusive. We, we want it, we know we should have it, but when we try to get it, it's just slipping right out of our hands every time. Humility should be sought after, but, never, never, but can never be claimed because the moment we claim to be humble, we're actually demonstrating the opposite. Pride. What makes it even more difficult is that the world is all about exalting those who are proud. Elevating those who are proud. Not the humble. The humble can take a back seat. And in many ways, the church has adopted the same mindset. We figured out new ways to boast in those that are accepted. Because we're boasting in the name of the gospel. So we've figured that we're doing better by boasting in the gospel. But we've, what we're actually doing in many ways, we're contradicting the very gospel we claim to be promoting because the central theme of the gospel is humility, not pride and not self-exaltation. So when we try and boast ourselves, boast in ourselves for proclaiming the gospel, we're actually undermining what it's all about. Every sin has its root in pride, but every virtue has its root in humility. Humility is the main ingredient in spiritual blessings. Humility begins with a proper self-awareness and in a high, high view of God. Jesus declared in, in Luke chapter 18 and verse 14, he says, For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. So the first way in order, in order to understand what walking worthy looks like is lowliness. And second, meekness. Verse 2 again, it says, With all lowliness and meekness. Humility produces meekness. Meekness only exists with humility. And meekness does not coexist with pride. Meekness is having a mild spirit, being self-controlled. And this probably best definition is strength under control. It is the opposite of being vindictive. It is the opposite of being vengeful. Some of us are just looking to get back at someone if they looked at us the wrong way. Because we're thinking, well, I know what they were thinking. I saw that. Look, he meant some ill will towards me. And in reality, someone may not have even noticed you, but they're just passing glance as they're looking around the room. But the countenance on their face made you think that they were thinking something ill of you. This doesn't mean you never get angry. It means you're never out of control. It means you're never losing your temper. Charles Spurgeon once said, I pray that the one who loses his temper will never find it again. Amen. The meek person gets angry by those things which disrespect or are harmful to God or others. And his anger is controlled and is carefully directed so as to not wildly disrupt or harm others. Those who are angered at the slightest little nuisance or slightest little change know nothing of meekness. In Proverbs 16, verse 32, it describes the meek person. It says, He that is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he that ruleth his spirit than he that taketh a city. The meek person will respond willingly to the word of God regardless of what it requires of him. Lowliness then produces meekness. And the third we see is long-suffering. It says, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering. This is about 
enduring negative circumstances without giving into them. When God called the prophet Jeremiah, he told him that his message would be hated and that he would be hated. He would be maligned, even persecuted. Not really a mission that we all want to get on board with, right? Before you do anything, before you step out to do anything, God says, okay, here's a couple things before you get started. Your message is going to be rejected. You're going to be hated. You're going to be maligned. People are going to laugh at you. They're going to scorn you. They're going to ridicule you. Now go out and get busy. Not exactly something that excites us to go out and get busy, right? He does anyways. And even with this knowledge, he's faithfully serving the Lord until the end of his life. Those who are long-suffering accept God's plans regardless of what they are, without questioning, and certainly without complaining. They do not play the comparison game and become jealous over how God directed this man's plan as opposed to mine. God, how is it fair that I'm over here serving in the trenches and working tooth and nail, trying as hard as I can, and this man has nothing but smooth sailing? Why couldn't I get that lot in life? What's so significant about him that I don't have the same situation in my life? Why does he always get the better end of things and I'm always left with the just horrible leftovers? Who decided this? Those who are long-suffering aren't doing this. They don't play the comparison game. They don't become jealous or envious of others, other things or how God is blessing one person as opposed to the next. They, they do not play these games. They remember how the Lord humbled himself on our behalf. How he was beaten, how he was mocked, how he was ridiculed, how he was hated and rejected and eventually crucified without even once lashing out or complaining to his father. He didn't ever go to the Lord and say, Lord, what is wrong with these people? How is this fair that they're doing this to me? Would you please do something to them that evens the scales a little bit? He was long-suffering. We should be as well. Lowliness, meekness, long-suffering. Fourth, we see forbearing love. With all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. And this is the idea of taking abuse from others while still being able to love them. Taking abuse from others while still being able to love them. This is sacrificial love because it cares for others, not for what it gets in return. This does not mean that we seek to cover up the sins of others. But we do not allow the sins of others to prevent us from loving them. It's because easier said than done. But if we're going to walk worthy of the vocation wherewith we're called, forbearing one another in love is a crucial quality. And fifth, we see unity. Look at what it says in verse number three. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Unity. Humility. Meekness long-suffering, forbearing love, all of those produce unity. Preserving unity in the body of Christ should be the desire for every believer. The bond that preserves unity is peace. It is the Holy Spirit who creates that unity within us, and it is his leading that we have to follow to maintain it. All of these virtues provide one of the most powerful testimonies that the church can ever have to the world. So that is what walking worthy looks like. And notice third, very quickly, the foundation of our worthy walk. The foundation of our worthy walk. Look at verses four to six really quick. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Everything that relates to our salvation, the church, and us living like we're children of God, it hinges upon unity. And Paul lists several areas of oneness and unity in these verses. Body, spirit, hope, Lord, faith, baptism, God and Father. The Holy Spirit is the one who produces the unity. And he's the one who keeps us united as we keep him as our foundation. He is the one who brings the unity because he is the one living within every single believer. So every single believer is united in that one aspect that we have the Holy Spirit, all of us, living within us. He is the one who brings that unity. We're all temples of the Holy Ghost as we collectively make up the body of Christ. But we're also unified in the hope of our calling. Every single believer will one day be in heaven. Every one of us. The same people that you don't get along with here in church, guess what? You're going to have eternity. You're going to be stuck with them. I hate to say it. You might as well get used to each other now. Right? Because eternity is eternity. Stop letting petty things stand between the two of you. Stop allowing little things to drive a wedge where there's no business there being. Might as well make things right today and start getting along with one another for eternity is what we all have together in our future as believers. But we're also united in Christ. It says we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It is only through Jesus Christ that we are saved. And that salvation comes only through faith in his finished work. Once we're saved, we identify to the world that we are in Christ through the ordinance of baptism. It's a public confession that we are with Christ, that we're going to live for him. And then we're united in the Father. Verse 6 says, One God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Paul's not trying to separate each member of the Godhead. Rather, he is emphasizing their unique roles and to, he's trying to focus our attention to the unity that every single believer has in each. Specifically, as we relate to one another in the church. We're created by God. We're loved by God. We're fathered by God. We're sustained by God. We're filled by God and we're blessed by God. And honestly, the list goes on and on and on. Those are the facts regarding every single believer. But are those truths being manifested to the world through us living like a child of God? God has called us to live a different life from the world. God has called us to stand apart and to live according to higher standards than what the world holds itself to. This is the life we agreed to when we trusted in Christ. We recognize that the life we've been living for ourselves is not cutting it and never will. And when we submitted ourselves to God, recognizing that he's the only answer for our salvation, we agreed that his way is better. And this is his way. He says, walk worthy of your calling, of your salvation. This is the life that will bring peace and joy today and for all eternity. So may we count the cost. May we find it worthy to live like we're a child of God and start demonstrating unity in the body of Christ today before we get to eternity. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that Lord, we get these reminders of what life should look like, especially as children of you. Lord, I know that none of us are perfect, that we at times allow 
petty issues to cloud our vision, Lord, to hurt relationships. And I pray that, Lord, as often as we allow those temptations to arise, that we would quickly shoot them down and, Lord, do what's necessary to fix matters, to forgive each other, Lord, to mend relationships, to build unity, Lord, and unity on you. Help us to realize how we're united. Help us to realize, Lord, how we're supposed to live in light of who we are because of what you've done for us. Lord, the world is already looking for reasons to dismiss the church and everything that we stand for. May we not fuel the fire. May we not give them reasons, Lord, to deny you or even to reject ever coming here because of the things they see us doing and that we're behaving no different from what they're seeing out in the world. May we shine as such a a blessed example of what your children should look like, both individually as well as corporately. And Lord, may we have an eternal impact on the lives of those around us because we're living like a child of yours and we're desiring, Lord, to do all that you've required of us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we close our...